Good morning, everyone. My name is Hannah, if you haven't met me yet, and I am very excited to be preaching from 1 Samuel chapter 1 this morning. So the Hannah on the screen is not actually referring to me, but to the first person in the book of 1 Samuel. So I get to preach about her for the first time ever in my life, and I'm very excited for that. So my title today is God Gives Grace to the Humble. And in the spirit of our running jokes about the series, I'm sure you'll hear more. My alternate title is Polygamy, Fertility, and Extended Breastfeeding. Do I have your attention? Okay, good, good. In all, serious, in all seriousness, though, this is a beautiful story. This is the beginning, Joseph told us last week, First Samuel is the beginning of a huge book on the monarchy that encompasses First Samuel through Second Kings. But the first chapter might surprise you because there's no big historical introduction or preface. It actually starts right into the life of a family. And I think that really demonstrates God's care for the individual stories in the midst of the big story of his people. So 1 Samuel, and you can get your Bibles out now because we'll be reading through it. 1 Samuel starts with a birth narrative of an important leader, much like the birth narrative of Moses, or Samson, or even John the Baptist, or Jesus. But it's actually not the birth narrative of either of the two important kings that we hear about in 1 Samuel. It's not the birth narrative of Saul or of David. In fact, it's the birth narrative of the humble prophet Samuel, which really demonstrates that the kingship is under the umbrella of God's leadership, of his guidance through the prophet. We are not going to be able to read every word of every chapter during the First Samuel series, but we are today. So get out your Bibles and let's follow along. First Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. There was a certain man from Ramathiam, a Zophite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroam, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, and Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. Let me pause right away to say there is a warning in this story you'll see about polygamy. In fact, in every biblical narrative with more than one wife, it becomes very apparent that polygamy is a problem. And of course, we know Jesus quotes Genesis to reaffirm marriage as a lifelong covenant between one man and one woman. But I'm not going to park here for very long because I'm pretty sure all the men here are saying, don't worry, I was not even considering it. One wife is sufficient. So let's keep going. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came from Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Peninnah and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. So in that culture, lacking, cult, lacking children was even harder than it is today in terms of economic necessity and societal expectations. And the writer says that the Lord had closed Hannah's womb. For me, this is the hardest statement of this passage, and I would need more time to explore the many theological implications of infertility. But let me just say, first of all, briefly, 
that this is not always the reason for infertility, just because it was once. You'll remember that in Jesus' ministry, where he was healing different diseases, he would attribute them to different causes. Sometimes they were spiritual, sometimes they were not. So that's something to keep in mind. The same medical fact might have different underlying causes, and we would need the Lord's discernment to know what it's from. But I don't want to glide past this statement and its reminder of God's sovereignty. In a day when many claim that every person has a right to a child, to a biological child, this and many other scriptures help challenge the prevailing cultural errors around surrogacy and reproduction, and our eyes must turn back to God. He's the one through whom we live and move and have our being. He's the one who is sovereign over birth and death. The foundations of the earth are the Lord's. The foundation of families is the Lord. And it would be misguided not to submit ourselves to him in this regard. And this is exactly what Hannah does in this passage. So verse 7. When Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, so pay attention here, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. This is referring to a Nazarite vow. It's a sign of dedication to the Lord. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. I love that Hannah feels quite comfortable sharing her sorrows with God and asking him for help. Nikki Gumbel points out, that she didn't allow bitterness to harden her heart, but year after year she poured out her soul before the Lord, and she cries out to the Lord to remember her. Not that she thinks he's forgotten her existence, but in the scriptures this means, come to my rescue, remember me, Lord, come to my rescue. And she prays in an effective way. It might remind you of the disciples in Acts 2 when they were filled with the Spirit and everyone said, are you drunk? There's something there. She spills all of her emotions before God like David in the Psalms or David when he's dancing before the Ark of the Covenant. And this is a good reminder to us, I think, as we pray together here at church or in other settings, that if Hannah or if Jesus' disciples in Acts had been too focused on what others thought of their prayers, they would not have experienced the same blessings from God. It reminds me of the tax collector in Jesus' parable in Luke 18, who prayed without any eloquent words. He just beat his breast and cried out for God's mercy. And Jesus said that he went home justified before God. For all of those who humble themselves in prayer before the Lord will be exalted. 
which is what Hannah says in the next chapter. Now, I find Hannah's vow fascinating here. During her prayer, Hannah dedicates Samuel to the Lord in a way that lets go of anything she was personally relying on in having a son. In that culture, like, he would have stayed on the farm. He would have comforted her in her old age. And he's not. She's dedicated him to the priesthood. He's not going to be around. But she's placed her hope and her security in the Lord. So verse 17, Eli answered, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, May your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. You'll remember that Hannah has not found help and support in her relationships. Peninnah, obviously, no sister wife here. She creates an atmosphere of continual harassment and competition and criticism year after year. Eli, the priest of God, is the one who makes this shocking accusation. Imagine if you were up at this altar weeping and praying before the Lord, maybe praying in tongues, and I came up to you and I said, you know, you really shouldn't come to church drunk. Horrible pastoral care. He's not discerning, and we'll see later that his connection to God is weak. In fact, he's already been warned that his sons are acting in terrible ways in the, in the tabernacle, and he hasn't removed them from their positions. The other person here, too, is Elkanah, and he, too, is lacking discernment. Yeah, he's a good family man. He loves God, but he has actually made it worse for both wives. When he gives Hannah this double portion, it doesn't comfort her. It increases the jealousy of Peninnah and increases her harassment and bullying. And his words of comfort, he's trying here, but his words of comfort are these. Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? One commentator, Mary Evans, write that, writes that Elkanah is really having trouble seeing this pain from Hannah's perspective. After all, he does have other children. Maybe it would have been kinder to at least say, you mean more to me than ten sons. But he has failed her. But for all those who feel they have been failed by key relationships in the midst of suffering, even by spouses who might fail to empathize, for all who feel that their misery is not understood and not just women, it's incredible to see that God Almighty, the Lord of hosts, does not share Elkanah's stunted perspective. He sees her, he remembers her, and he helps her. Eugene Peterson observes that as Hannah breaks out of this role of barren wife imposed on her by her rival's malice, her husband's love, and her priest's ignorance, she goes straight to God. And in doing so, she ends up praying herself into the conception, not praying herself, praying into the conception and birthing of Samuel, who's not just a gift for her, but the leader who will usher in a new period of devotion to God for the whole people of Israel. And you'll see that even before her prayer is answered, she experiences relief and decides to move forward in her life, symbolizing by when she starts, she decides to eat. She decides to go ahead and eat. After she's prayed, she feels that relief. She's not pregnant yet, but she feels that relief. Before any change has happened, she finds peace and release from God that she didn't find from anyone else. So let's see what happens. Verse 19, early the next morning they arose and worshiped before the Lord and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife Hannah and the Lord remembered her. 
So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. When her husband Elkanah went up with all his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and fulfill his vow, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, after the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him to the Lord and he will live there always. Do what seems best to you, her husband Elkanah told her. Stay here until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord make good his word. So the woman stayed at home and nursed her son until she had weaned him. Names and their meanings are very important in Hebrew culture, and you might not be surprised to hear that I'm pretty familiar with the meaning of the name Hannah. In Hebrew, it's actually Hannah. Hannah means grace and favor, and it shows up all through Scripture, not just as a name. It reflects for sure on how Hannah carries herself, how she responds to Eli and to Peninnah, but I think its primary application, implication, is that God shows favor, grace and favor on someone who was not highly favored in her culture. This is the very word she uses when she talks to Eli, and of course God is gracious to her, shows favor to her, and gives her a son. The name she gives to him, Samuel, means that God has heard and helped her. God has heard and helped her. The Lord remembered her. This is said of Noah and Abraham and Rachel and of the entire people of God. It's said of you too, whatever you're facing. I think this story has very broad application about praying fervently in any desperate situation and expecting the favor of God. Praying fervently in any desperate situation and expecting the favor of God. But Hannah's miracle is quite specific. It is the conception of a child. And I want to affirm that God does give babies to people experiencing infertility. I know some of you right here in our congregation can testify to God's miracle-working grace and favor in that way. And I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands at this point, but... Whether your baby is still a baby or is an adult by now, I encourage you to keep telling these stories of God's grace and favor in your life. And just like it increases our faith for healing when we read stories of people being healed in Scripture, if you're praying regarding infertility in your life or the life of someone you know, it's really wise to read stories in Scripture like Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, or the mother of Samson. She doesn't have a name in scripture, but it's a really cool story where she was visited by an angel. Or Rebecca, who came from an infertility to twins. Now, these twins fought a lot, so keep that in mind. But these miracles from God will increase your faith and help you to pray accordingly. So let's finish this chapter. Verse 24. After, she was, after he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When the bull had been sacrificed, they brought the boy to Eli, and she said to him, Pardon me, my Lord, as surely as you live, I and the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord for his whole life. He will be given over to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. 
Hannah took her promise to God very seriously. And there is a spiritual weight to this that shows up elsewhere in Scripture. The Bible actually does not encourage making vows to God. But it says if you do, you better keep it. Hannah demonstrates that children are a gift, and it is not wrong to deeply desire them. But family's not first. God's kingdom is still first above everything. She sends, Hannah to, she sends Samuel to the temple when he's weaned from breastfeeding, likely between the ages of three and five, and then visits him only once a year as far as we can see, having dedicated him to the service of God. Reading this, we can't escape the question, how tightly are we going to hold on to our children? Ultimately, they belong to God. Are we going to direct them to him, even if it might be outside our own interests? I at first was thinking, like, I can't even imagine how Hannah would feel. And then I read this quote from Mary Evans, and I'll tell you why I began crying right away. She writes that many believing mothers and fathers have prayed that their children might be used in God's service and have known the paradox of joy and pain as their prayers have been answered, and those children have gone on to work in dangerous parts of the world. I began thinking right away of my parents in the States and of my sister, who is a missionary with her husband in a closed Middle Eastern country. My sister is one year younger than I am. People always thought we are twins. We've shared a lot of life together. She's always been one of my very best friends. And now, because of her work, I rarely get to talk to her, even with the amazing benefits of Wi-Fi calling. She and her husband adore my kids. They're the best auntie and uncle, but they rarely get to see them. I'm super interested in what they are doing in their country, but I don't get specific details because it's actually dangerous to have those kinds of conversations with her. It puts her at risk. Part of her required training is to stay educated on best practices in hostage situations. But she and her husband and their team are doing God's work in the midst of people that God adores. They're following his call far away from me. And while I lament that loss, I'm also so overjoyed. Like, my sister wanted to be a martyr when she was a, when she was a child. She has the call of God on her life. And so even while she's far away from me, I send her my money, I send her my prayers, and I send her all of my love. And I recognize that my parents' joy and lament is probably like 10 times that. They treasure all the rare visits and the Zoom calls they get to have with my sister. But they have recognized and they have stated many times that there are things in God's kingdom that are more important than the genuine good of being close to our children. Pastor Ellie's parents have decided the same thing, as evidenced by their own willingness to become missionaries from the Lord in a broken place on the other side of the globe, far as can be from their beautiful grandchildren whom you and I get to see every week. I'm inspired and challenged by both sets of parents, and I want to continue asking God how to help my children to seek his kingdom first, even when it goes outside my preferences or my plan for my children. I will say, though, that my kids are never leaving the island, and if they do, I'm following them. So just to clarify, you can, you know, minister to them in that way. As we close, I want to leave you with three things from this passage that we can pray for our children, grandchildren, and other children that we love. Number one, 
that they'd grow up in the presence of God. This is said of Samuel, and I just love it. Samuel grew up in the presence of God. And that's so encouraging that it was still true when he wasn't with his parents. He was with a weak priest and wicked sons, and he grew up in the presence of God. This is something we can pray for our children. That they grow, number two, in wisdom and stature, in favor with the Lord and people. This is said of Samuel, and who else? Jesus, that's right, Jesus in Luke 2. Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with the Lord and people. This is something we can pray for our kids. Wisdom, like, is there anything more important we can pray for right now in our culture? That they would recognize God's kingdom. That they would know the difference between right and wrong, the path that leads to life. Stature is more about the physical body, and it's really important to pray for that too. Favor with God and people is paramount. This is our relational growth, our spiritual and social growth. So we can pray that for them. Then finally, number three, that they'd say like Samuel in 1 Samuel 3, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. That they would hear God's voice through scripture, through deep relationship with him, and they would obey him. If you're used to praying these things for your kids, Keep praying. Persistence in prayer is effective and essential. If you've never prayed this for your kids, it's not too late to start, even if they're grown now. So let's close as the band comes up by doing that together, whether for your own children, your grandchildren, or I hope you also have other children in your life whom you love. Maybe somebody will come to mind right now. Maybe your neighbor kids. Maybe some kids that you work with. Let's pray over them. Lord, we pray quite simply out of 1 Samuel that these children would grow up in the presence of God. That they would recognize your voice. That they would see things through kingdom eyes. That you would be with them when they are alone or they are afraid they would know your presence. We pray also that they would grow in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and people. We pray that they would continue to grow wherever they're at. Lord, we might have adult children that we find are a little behind, and that's okay. We pray that no matter where they're at, they would keep growing. Lord, we might have children where we, we don't see that growth, but we know that you're working and we keep praying into it that they grow, not only in favor with God and people, but in love for God and love for people, the two greatest commandments. And finally, Lord, we pray that these children, whether young, maybe babies right now, or all the way to adults, would say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening that they would have a humble, receptive heart before you and that you would speak to them. You would guide them. You would take them deeper. We pray this not just for our sake or for their sake, but for your kingdom and all the people you want to minister to through them. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, these altars are open for prayer. And I encourage you to come. If you need healing, if you have anything in your life that you've come in burdened by, come for prayers. This is a great time to pray after the service. It's a little quieter. 
but also if you or someone in your life is experiencing infertility, the Lord has favor for you and he wants you to be prayed for. So I encourage you to do that, to step out in faith. But let me leave everyone with this benediction. Would you please stand? This is a blessing from the Lord for you. Brothers and sisters, I encourage you to be like Hannah and to humble yourselves in fervent prayer. And I bless you in Jesus' name with grace and favor for yourself, for your children, and through you to those around you. Go in peace.